0: Ken Miller, professor of government at Claremont McKenna College, has just written a fascinating accessible 259 page book, his fourth. Texas versus California, a history of their struggle for the future of America, published by Oxford University Press, is one part history, one part both contemporary and forward-looking policy cultural analysis. Ken writes that Texas and California had remarkably similar origin stories but that given each state's starkly different choices in the last three decades especially about immigration, environment, tax structure, wage and labor policy, poverty and social issues, the two states today increasingly serve as a kind of vanguard for the polarizing impulses of red versus blue America, animating the country in the midst of a heated presidential election cycle. As you know, normally on this podcast, we feature a scholar and a journalist this episode's a little different. If you were to read Ken's acknowledgments section, you'd see that he thanks by name our second guest, George C. George is a Dallas businessman who last year sat with Ken for an in depth research interview about Texas, its history, its political twists and turns since 1979, especially, its economics, culture, even its religion. Today, George leads a Dallas financial management company, and he's a seventh generation Texan whose grandfather, Bill Clements, was the first Republican governor of Texas since Reconstruction. In His grandfather's second term, George worked in the administration and the conversation you're about to hear, he tells some vivid firsthand stories from that chapter, including his grandfather's close friendship in the 1970s with then Governor Reagan and other leaders in the Golden State who saw the world in very much the same way as that ascendant group of early Republican leaders in the Lone Star State. Today, George chairs a number of boards, but perhaps the one closest to his heart is the University of Texas at Austin's Clements Center for National Security, which his family endowed in 2013 to honor the legacy of his grandfather and to help train up a rising generation in better understanding national security and diplomacy. And while George is a seventh generation Texan, Ken is a fifth generation Californian. In their current trajectories, are the two
1: states' models both sustainable? The California model is sustainable as long as Silicon Valley thrives. If it's a gamble, the
0: kicker is that given the massive expanse of the federal government post-World War II, Texas and California's state politics today don't exist in a vacuum. As Ken says, carbon neutral regulation would only work in California if the rest of the country, and for that matter the world, buys in. The differences between the two states, say on minimum wage, anti-poverty subsidies, or immigration increasingly require common cover by the federal government. So from religion to race, from energy policy to generating new tax revenue or falling further into debt, how the two states fare will offer increasingly important lessons.
2: I don't think this subject's ever been more relevant in my lifetime, maybe in the history of the country. Really, as we go, so goes the country, and there are just two such contradictory visions of where America should go that it's really the whole ball of wax. You're in for a great dialogue today with
0: a first-rate academic and a first-rate political reformer. Enjoy the conversation.
2: Ken, I would just start out by saying, why the book? What led you to write this? There's been a lot written in The Economist and other periodicals and all that, but only one or two books of this magnitude or depth, to my knowledge. So it's a widely discussed topic, but it's not a, to me, a substantively covered topic so far. So you fill that void, but what led you to pursue that?
1: Yeah, so I agree that there has been a lot of commentary and discourse by pundits and and others about the rivalry between Texas and California. And there've been a few books, but actually most of the books are advocating on behalf of one or the other Of the two models, either the the Texas model or the California model, and they're they're basically advocacy books. What I wanted to do was to try to dig down deeper into these two states and try to understand from their own perspectives how they became the way they are and how they developed this rivalry between the two of them. And as I dug into it a little bit more deeply, the thing that was fascinating to me was the many similarities between the two states that have, in terms of their origins and founding and development, and even their their politics in many ways, especially during the, the middle years of the 20th century. And I was curious to see why it is that they've become so polarized politically over the past uh, generation or so. And so this is an attempt to really objectively look at the rivalry and try to see the trade-offs between the two models, and also just what these two models uh, present as options for the country moving forward. Because it seems to me that the California is presenting a vision, a progressive vision that uh, Democrats across the country essentially are embracing. And the Texas model, a much more conservative model, is consistent with uh, red state and conservative viewpoints. And there's a competition in our country right now. And so by looking at these two states, I think we can get a sense of what options the nation has moving forward.
2: There's an epic book, Josh, for your listeners to this podcast, if they want to know about the the American conquest of California under Polk and Manifest Destiny called Blood and Thunder, and it chronicles Kit Carson's central role in kind of not colonizing, I hate to use that term, but conquering the American West, and there's an epic story about the U.S. Army marching 800 miles across the desert, the southwestern U.S. to get into California, and they're completely exhausted when they get to California and the Mexican army immediately attacks them and they somehow win the battle, even though they're starving and and exhausted. And it's a great uh, sequitur into how California was founded by the U S and you brought up and Ken's brought up how similar Texas and California were for a very long period of time. And I don't think many Americans really fully are aware of that because we forget our history so quickly and we don't recall the past, but one personal anecdote I have along those lines is, my grandfather was the man who turned Texas Republican. I wouldn't say he turned Texas red because Texas was red even when it was dominated by Democrats. The conservatives just flipped over the Republican Party. But when he ran for governor in 1978, he flew out to California to visit with Ronald Reagan about that. And they were dear friends and very close. And Casper Weinberger was Secretary of Defense under Reagan because my grandfather advocated for him. That's how he got the job. But they went out to California and visited about that. and. And my grandfather decided to run, and he used kind of a Reagan model in terms of running for governor. And he actually hired Reagan's campaign manager to be his campaign manager in, in 1978, Tom Reed. Tom had worked for my grandfather in the Pentagon when he ran the Pentagon, and Tom was Secretary of the Air Force during that period of time. And then in the Reagan administration in the early 80s, Tom was the prime expert and negotiator on nuclear arms treaty. So Tom was kind of a Renaissance man and, and really brilliant. But I recall very distinctly working for Larry Eagleburger in the U.S. State Department in the early 90s. And Judge Clark, Bill Clark, who was National Security Advisor to Reagan, came in. And I remember my grandfather telling me about riding horses with Clark at Reagan's ranch in California. So there, there was a deep abiding trust like commonality, same kind of perspective on life between kind of Blue Blood, California and Blue Blood, Texas, people who kind of ran the two states, but it was all Anglo. And if you look at California today, there aren't any Anglos running anything in California. So in basically a generation, it's completely flipped in less than a generation. And it all starts in 1996 after Pete Wilson's immigration policy.
0: Yeah, Can I just quick follow that? Because you know our friends today, peers, they think of Texas as you know, Friday Night Lights, as you say in the book. At one point, I think grit, swagger, cowboys, oilmen. They think of California as glitter and dreams and, and uh, hippies and starlets and endless summers. But you talk about how they, for, for, from 1928 to 88, voted the exact same way in presidential elections. What was it,
1: 13 times? 13 times out of 16 elections between 1928 and 1988, which is an amazing agreement, and that that included both Democrats and Republicans. So both states voted for FDR and Truman. Both states voted for Eisenhower, and both states voted for Reagan. Right? It was both states voted for LBJ in 1964. So there was this sense that the two states were aligned politically, at least in terms of national politics. George also makes the very interesting point that Texas was red before it was Republican, and the story of the the polarization of the two states is really a story about the sorting ideologically of the two political parties in the United States. Whereas in the past, both parties were less ideologically clearly defined and divided as they are today. So for example, Texas, um, although it was more conservative than California uh, in terms of political culture throughout its history, was overwhelmingly Democrat until the late 20th century. And, And George's grandfather was a big part of changing the state um, in terms of its partisan orientation from Democrat to Republican. But even when he was elected governor, the whole legislature was Democrat in in Texas. And California, although it was more liberal than Texas throughout its history, was predominantly Republican for most of the 20th century. There were only four Democrats elected governor in California in the whole 20th century. And so what the story is about is sort of how the parties sorted so that Conservatives now orient toward the Republican Party and liberals and progressives to the Democratic Party. And that's part of what is the story of California. But one other point on California, I do think that the underlying political culture and other elements that sort the parties today between Republican and Democrat in California, the state has become more uniformly progressive than it was before. Back in the mid-20th century, the two parties did compete. A lot. Reagan was elected governor, but so was Jerry Brown. He was his, his successor, and um, there was usually a Democratic legislature after the mid twentieth century. So there was a strong competition between the two parties. But from the, the late twentieth um, century forward, a lot of factors, including Proposition One Eighty Seven, which was an anti illegal immigration proposition in in the state, uh, a lot of people say, well, that's what turned California blue because it was. It alienated the immigrant community and drove them to the Democratic Party and made California uh, Democratic. But in truth, there were other factors that were at play, um, including the rise in the power of public sector unions, the hollowing out of the middle class, increasing secularization of the population in California. So there are a lot of factors. And I guess one last thing I would say with respect to California turning blue is that if you know an interesting comparison and this is something that surprised me as I learned about it more in researching this book, is the state of Illinois. So Illinois has voted the same as California in almost every presidential election for the last 100 years. And that was true when they were voting Republican in the six straight elections leading up to 1992 and when they voted Democratic in the seven straight elections after uh, 1992. And the point here is that there was no equivalent to 187 or an anti-immigrant movement in Illinois. There were these other factors going on in Illinois and some other um, northern states, including Oregon, Washington, New Jersey, and the New England states. So people are aware of the realignment of the South from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. But there was also a counter realignment of the northern states from the Republican Party to the Democrats. And California was a big part of that.
2: I would just add that, you know, there just are so many common elements early on. If you look at Highland Park, which is one of the most elite neighborhoods in Texas and Dallas, the same architect and town planner who laid out Beverly Hills laid out Holland Park and laid out the Highland Park Village It's the same architectural style. There, there's just so many common traits. I really think 187, looking back, in my view, was the flip of the switch. Ken knows more about this than I do, but I remember distinctly Wilson's rhetoric was so angry and vitriolic and the Hispanic population in California, here's the big galvanizing difference is Cesar Chavez union, migrant worker, very noticeably left. And whereas the Texas Hispanic citizen typically is not so much. They're very religious, mostly Catholic. They're very family oriented. They're very, give me a job and get out of my way and let me work. And they're pretty conservative people for the most part even though they tend to vote more Democratic than Republican because they have some anxieties and fears about racism in the Republican Party, which I don't think are completely unfounded. I think there are problems there. So that's the big difference to me politically, maybe not culturally, but politically, Wilson destroyed that voting block forever. And it's such a large piece of California, you just can't win in California without some part of that voting block. So they have no chance to get that prospectively under current circumstances. where in Texas, Republicans have a tremendous opportunity to add Hispanics. George W. Bush split the vote last time he ran for governor in 1998.
1: Yeah, just two quick points there. I agree that the Hispanic population in Texas is on balance, more conservative than in California. It's partly Because they've been uh, socialized, immigrants have been socialized into a more conservative political culture in the state. And there's also not the presence of organized labor in uh, Texas in the same way that becomes an organizing device for uh, immigrants in California. And so there are a lot of ways in which the underlying political culture of the two states has affected and influenced the immigrant populations in the two states. In terms of religion, um, Texas has been called the heart of the Latino Bible Belt, that Latinos in Texas are more religious than they are in other parts of the United States. And so there are important differences. If you look at the pure census level demographics of the two states, they look very, very similar. That Texas is one of only five majority minority states. It's got a 40% Hispanic population, which is identical to California. It's got a larger African-American population than California. And so By all the measures that people say, well, this is a, there's a direct line between demography and politics. That demography is destiny, people say. But that hasn't played out in Texas, that Texas is a majority minority state, but it's a Republican state. And so there are cultural factors that contribute to Texas being conservative and Republican that go beyond pure demographics.
0: Yeah, I was fascinated by that 39%, 40% number for for both states, more or less exactly equal. And I've heard George, I think, talk before about 1994 as being a consequential time for sort of that story uh, there. You know, obviously, you talked, Ken, about like if either were a, a nation of its own, it'd be in the top 10, both California and Texas. That's something to keep in mind. But in terms of sort of the underlying current of that immigration culture at a time when immigration is a obviously a national consequential topic as well. How do you see those, those distinctions being parsed between California and Texas?
1: I totally agree that Texas went a different direction than California in the 1990s, that George W. Bush as governor presented a much more welcoming stance toward immigrants than Pete Wilson did in California. And I think that's contributed to Republicans doing better among the Latino community in Texas than in California over time. I wonder about Texas more recently, whether attitudes toward immigration in the Republican Party in Texas have shifted off from uh, where they were under George W. Bush and whether that can be, it might become a problem for Republicans in Texas over time as the state becomes increasingly Hispanic and, and minority majority overall.
2: Yeah, I just back to the commonality and common ties politically as well. When Pete Wilson ran for president in 1996, his two national chairmen were Bill Weld, who's governor of Massachusetts, and my grandfather, who'd been retired for five years by then, but he was still national co-chair for Wilson. And Wilson on paper was a very strong presidential candidate, but he lost his voice for like a month at the start of the campaign. And he never caught back up. And then the the Republicans were stuck with Bob Dole, who was a dreadful presidential candidate. I think the immigration issue is is really, really difficult. I think that a lot of Texans are very much pro-legal immigration. And we are very fond of Hispanic Texans, those in state leadership and those who are starting out as dishwashers and mowing the lawn and all that. We don't really care where they are in society. They're very productive members of Texas culture, society, and business. And so I, I don't think there's... There's definitely a a libertarian, far-right, Trump, anti-immigration strain in Texas, but I think it's a distinct minority. I think most Texans are very pro-immigration, and they just want our laws enforced, whereas in California, it's just so laissez-faire and Sanctuary City, and there doesn't seem to be any concern about violent, illegal immigrants in our society. I I don't really understand it, to be honest. I don't understand they're dealing with the homeless problem either, and I, I would flip it back to Ken and say, California's resilience through the Great Recession and through this pandemic has been extraordinary economically. A lot of that due to the tech boom in Silicon Valley and all the wealth generated by that. But most Americans don't understand that California is kind of a bifurcated society right now. There's tremendous wealth on the top end, mainly generated by real estate and technology, and there's tremendous poverty on the bottom end. And there's not much in the middle. And the middle class is, with all California's tax policies, is getting squeezed out. So long-term is, California as a deep blue project sustainable?
1: Yeah, so that's that's the big question for the state. And I think the California model is sustainable as long as Silicon Valley thrives. And the whole the state budget is by far the largest state budget in, in the nation. And it's very ambitious. And Democrats in the legislature and Governor Newsom have even higher ambitions for universal health care, and other very large state level programs. And that's only possible in a situation where the wealthiest sector of the society is willing to pay a large share of its wealth into the state treasury. And so central difference between Texas and California is that Texas has a zero personal income tax and California has the largest personal income tax of any state in the country at 13.3%. And that hits the top 1% of our society, the Silicon Valley folks, with a very big tax bill. And so they're paying millions of dollars, in some cases, many millions of dollars into the state treasury. And so the state is able to sort of sustain a high level of government spending, even in economic downturns. Now, that has been true because Silicon Valley, even this year during the pandemic, tech stocks, continue to thrive and do well. And so the state hasn't been hit as hard as some other states might be. All that being said, I think it's an open question whether California can sustain this model. I think it's an even more uh, difficult uh, project for other states that don't have an economic cluster like Silicon Valley, or people willing to pay a premium to live in this kind of climate that California enjoys. So a state that doesn't have those natural or um, constructed advantages that California has, would have a very hard time maintaining this kind of state-level economic model. I
0: wonder if we could flip just for a minute and talk about sort of the the layer down, the religion piece, uh, which is, you know, doesn't factor substantially into the five political economic uh, areas that you go into at length in the book, Ken, but you do cite this study from 2014 Pew. Um, who says, you know, that, that effectively there were, there were 77% of Texans who self-identify as being Christian. And in California, by stark contrast, you know, 27% self-identify as being none having no religion that is, you know, and if you compare Dallas and San Francisco, it's an even more aggravated distinction between the two. 70% call themselves Christian in Dallas, 48% calls himself Christian in San Francisco, 38% in Dallas call himself evangelical versus just 10% in San Francisco. And you say, you know, in the country more more broadly, starting in 1970s, especially religion was more closely tied to politics and to voting patterns. Can you tell us about sort of the underlying religion angle piece in the two states as you see it?
1: Yeah, so as the two political parties have sorted ideologically, they've also sorted culturally as well. And increasingly, those who identify as religious and social conservatives orient toward the Republican Party. And those who are more secular, who have no religion, orient toward the Democratic Party. And so one of those underlying cultural factors that are driving red and blue states apart, and that's true for California and Texas. California is not the most secular state in the nation there are other other parts in new england and otherwise in other places that are a little bit more secular but it's drifting in that direction and texas is not the most religious state in the nation some of the deep south states are more religious than texas but it's oriented on on that side of the spectrum and so that underlying religious difference does affect the political polarization of the two states one point about california that i think is interesting is that southern california in particular used to have a much more vibrant evangelical ecosystem. A lot of people forget that it was the birthplace of things like Campus Crusade for Christ and focus on the family and evangelical institutions like Fuller Seminary and Biola University. And Billy Graham had his first really large campaign in, Los, in Crusade in Los Angeles. So Southern California, especially Orange County, but even the Los Angeles suburbs more generally, had a much larger religious and evangelical presence in the mid-20th century than is true today. A lot of these evangelical organizations have actually exited California for other states or something like Crystal Cathedral, Robert Shuler's large church and radio and television ministry has uh, closed down. And so that feature of California cultural and political life that sustained a more conservative orientation within the state has now depleted, but it's still very strong in Texas. And that's part of the reason why I think it's going to be difficult for Democrats to really turn Texas blue in a meaningful way, that there is this social conservatism, partly religious, partly rooted in sort of libertarian individualistic values, a commitment to Second Amendment rights and things like that, that is very different in the two states. But religion is a big part of it in Texas that I think has sustained the conservative orientation of the state.
2: I want to come back to the sustainability of the model piece and talk specifically about Texas, because I'd give California a 60, 65 percent chance of sustainability. Texas, I'd give more like 80, 90 percent. And that's because the regulatory and governmental model is so skewed towards the private sector and business and being pro-business and you know, Texas could certainly screw it up. And I think our population can exceed California's within 20 to 30 years. So it may just get so big that it's hard to sustain. But the vector, the trajectory right now is really, really strong and powerful. And uh, I would echo what Ken said about blue Texas. It's baloney. It'll never happen. I, I think some Democrats will start getting elected within 10 to 15 years just because The Republican Party in Texas has gotten fat, happy, lazy, stupid and arrogant, and they're putting up a bunch of career politicians who are just bad leaders and are no good. So eventually one of those guys is going to get knocked off. Ted Cruz nearly got knocked off two years ago, which shows how universally he's loathed by not just Democrats, but a lot of Republicans as well. But the fact that that Robert Francis O'Rourke Jr., as Karl Rove likes to call him, got within 2.8 percentage points and then comes out and says, I'm going to take all your guns and came out as for abortion on demand. Back to the social issues. Ken Target shows that he's not planning on ever running for office in Texas again, <laughs> because those are not winning slogans in Texas. It is very socially conservative. It will remain that way. And Back to your religious comment. I know the men who founded Focus focused on the family and they decamped to Colorado Springs a couple of decades ago. And Campus Crusade is in Orlando, Florida now. Fuller Seminary is still there. Rick Warren is still there, but the evangelical tide in California, which was very large for a very long period of time, is ebbing big time. And But it's not just California. It's a national phenomenon. If you take George Barna, who does a lot of polling on this, Gen Z and the millennials are drifting away from Christianity in significant numbers. And, and that's going to have a materially bad impact on the whole country, not just California. And it's going to impact Texas, too.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Fuller Seminary is selling its campus. I mean, it's still looked to as being sort of an example of a creative solution with their emphasis on digital and the like. But as you say, so what about this, George? You're, I heard this morning just the Newswire that DCCC is going to put $1.029 million into Chip Roy's seat and uh, maybe Will Hurd's uh, retiring seat as well. You know, is it sort of short-term strategy or is it substantive to try to go after the blueing of Texas?
2: I think it's possible. I think Chip Roy has a Ted Cruz problem. He's universally loathed by the Democrats and by quite a few Republicans too. He's a very acerbic personality. And I, I don't understand that kind of politician where you're just such an ideologue that you're, you're just, and you do it in a very unpleasant way. I mean, your your job is to represent your constituents, not to be unpleasant or be a rigid ideologue that, if you're not 100% with with someone, they're the enemy. (laughs) So, But I think this this election will be very telling. We talked about 1978, and I would reemphasize that the reason Texas went red in such a material way was Bill Clements. He was by far the biggest impact on that. You can talk about John Tower and John Connolly flipping, and many of your listeners won't even know any of these people. And George W. Bush and Rick Perry and so forth and so on, K. Billy Hutchison, but he was the big mover in that by a mile, and most people have never heard of him. When he got elected, the state legislature had 22 Republicans in the entire Texas House out of 150. And in 2010, when I was chairman of ART, which is a statewide Republican group, we won 22 Republican seats in that election alone <laughs> to give a 102 to 48 majority in the House. The House majority is down now down to nine, nine from what would that be? 54, 10 years ago. So it's diminished and we would have lost the House already if not for that 2010 election. But whether it's in Texas House seats, I think the Texas House will stay Republican. Whether it's congressional seats, you've got the Culverson seat in Houston that Wesley Hunt, an African-American Army captain, is running for. You've got Genevieve Collins, who's from a dynastic Dallas Republican family, running for Colin Allred's seat that had been Republican forever. And then you've got Beth Van Dyne defending a Denton County Republican seat. How all these these elections play out is going to be very interesting, including the, what do they call her, abortion Barbie, a lady who's running against Chip Roy, Ted Cruz's acolyte. How all those races come out, Wendy Davis is her name, will be very interesting in terms of where Texas is going the next four or so years.
0: Ken, I wonder if I could read you quickly a A quote you pulled from Governor Abbott at the outset because of your your idea that there's so much in common, recently said, here's the deal, Texas is the leader of the national movement for capitalism. California leads the race in America towards socialism. Californians generally think that government should run every detailed nuance of your life all the way down to dictating what kind of straw you should drink from, and by God, it better not be a straw from Chick-fil-A. California inevitably is going to fail with the politics it's pursuing. Yo, I'm curious about whether there was something along the way in the research that surprised you. You've talked about, yeah, this this whole idea of sibling still is difficult to get. But yeah, was there something in the, in the research itself that surprised you?
1: Well, I think that kind of quote, that kind of trash talk by the governor against California, that's why I kind of started out researching this book with that expectation that these these two states are are rivals or totally opposite. And I guess part of what made it an interesting project was learning more about the history and the the way in which they had been very similar over years but have divided in this radical way. I think it really is a radical division between the two states and the two visions that they have. Governor Abbott describes it as capitalism and socialism. You could characterize it that way or in, in similar ways. But they really are exact opposites on so many of these policy issues that I go through in the book. It's not just tax, it's labor law, $15 an hour minimum wage, as opposed to just following the federal minimum, it's the right to work versus unionization on uh, environmental regulation. A lot of people in California want to ban fracking and and they're in favor of a zero carbon economy, whereas Texas is still in favor of developing its carbon, uh, oil and gas resources uh, on social policy on all of these things. They're now opposites, right? And so the question is, how did that happen? And it's kind of an interesting mystery in a way, and it's a story really about the nation as a whole, how the nation has gone from being, having a much larger sort of centrist consensus to being much more polarized on a whole range of issues And Texas and California, as Governor Abbott describes in that quote, are at the opposite poles of this divide.
2: I would just add on to that. I think Greg Abbott really exemplifies the politicians we have in Texas today. He's been a politician for almost 40 years. He speaks in very, very partisan red meat tones. That's not the way he described that. That's not serious analysis. It's generally true, but it's more red meat for his base. And I think if Texas does turn purple at some point, it's going be, gonna to be because we have such partisan, hard right ideology that isn't about serving the people of Texas. It's more about just throwing red meat at the base and sticking the finger in the eye of the left and I don't think that's super effective myself. And I do think that going prospectively, I'm going to be fascinated to watch how California tries to stem all these people just fleeing the state like lightning because their taxes are too high and they can't afford to live there anymore and how they handle their social services and in their major cities with all the homeless population and with all the free needles are given out for drug addicts and all the defecation on the streets. It's really, you go to San Francisco, which I've done on business several times recently, it's grossly overstated on the right and in, in newspapers around the country, but it is noticeable and it's getting worse, apparently. So I think that politically, though, California and Texas have both become kind of caricatures. The politics are too extreme. They're not about serving all citizens. They're more about serving their cons- their constituents and the people who send them money.
0: What you said about Silicon Valley makes me remember of the Churchill line that business is the is the horse that pulls the wagon. And that's a very compelling image that you laid about Silicon Valley being what sort of makes possible California to actually sustain the project, as as it were. But I'm wondering, you know, George, you've got deep ties in terms of political, you know, leadership, friendship in in Texas. If you were to give a piece of counsel to the California governor about how to actually build and strengthen more of that middle
2: class, what would that be? Well, I would defer to Ken on California politics. I don't know much about it, but I have observed Gavin Newsom since he was... Mayor of San Francisco, I was out there with my wife on a holiday when he was leading a gay rights march out there, the same weekend that Italy won the World Cup and all these Italian Californians went streaming through the streets, screaming and carrying Italian flags, which is highly entertaining. I view Governor Newsom as a very, very skillful politician and at least in his demeanor is pretty reasonable. He is seems pretty befuddled by the pandemic though, which to be fair, I think every politician I've seen is like that. <laughs> I think their policies are hopeless for the middle class. I don't think you can raise a family in California with the real estate values and prices and with the tax policies out there. I I don't think it's sustainable. I I don't have any advice for him. I think that the the only advice would be to reverse years of bad policymaking for middle class families. And I I don't think they're going to do it. I think they get more progressive every day. And I would come back to the energy comment Ken made earlier, too. And that's one area where Texas has really excelled, you know. The caricature of Texas is this wildcat or oil man who's out there and hitting the whiskey and drilling as fast as he can and leveraging himself up to, the, to an extreme amount to try to bet on the come and, and make a big fortune. And that probably was true 80 years ago. But today, Texas, from an energy standpoint, is extremely well balanced. We're the largest wind producer in the country by a factor of three. We're heavily investing in solar in addition to fossil fuels. And that's another thing where to me, going forward, I have a hard time seeing how California works unless Silicon Valley and the tech boom continues to generate tax revenues to support everything else. We're so balanced in energy and so productive that way. And California has to import 40% of its fossil fuels because although it's been a top five oil state for decades, which most people don't understand, they have incredible oil reserves. It's so out of favor now, they're trying to eliminate drilling in the state. It almost has been eliminated. So they've got to import their oil from other states at much higher prices. And now they're having outages as we speak because of the heat wave out there, because they're not building enough natural gas capacity. So their energy policy is is literally insane. And they're not going to have enough energy for their people. And the price they're going to have to pay for it is, is off the charts. And it's just politically correct nonsense. Anyone who knows anything about energy realizes that for at least the next 20 years, we have to have significant fossil fuels or we can't run the country. And AOC and all these other radicals on the left that Californians just love, they are saying, let's eliminate all fossil fuels in 10 years. Well, that sends us into something worse than the Great Depression and kind of back to the Stone Age. You can't run modern society on that. So whereas I would argue that on the far right wing of Texas politics, when you get into social policy and bathroom bills and some of these things that most normal people, it's irrelevant to their lives. That's a bit extreme on Texas's end, on California's end the politics are kind of even sillier. It just doesn't work. And I think California will be sustainable just because of the industry out there. So titanic, especially on the tech side, that tax revenue will continue to sustain the welfare state they've created, but it's a, it's a heavy lift. It really is. And one other thing, and I know this is a long monologue, but when Howard Jarvis and I think it was proposition 13 property tax reform in 1978, it reduced property taxes to next to nothing. And that has made, a real estate unaffordable to a normal person, and also has made the impact of California's budget has to rest on sales taxes and income taxes because there's no real property tax revenue. They need significant tax reform, and I probably doesn't get there because it would hammer real estate prices. But the way they fund their state budget from tax revenue is it doesn't work anymore.
1: Yeah, just a quick follow on that. One thing that's remarkable about California, if you look at the history, is that. A half century ago, it was it was a middle class paradise. And it was attracting people from you know around the United States to move to California because they could afford this is in the wake of World War II. There was enormous growth in the state in the decades after World War II as former GIs and others moved to California and could afford a home and could build a life and raise a family in California. That's just not happening now. Middle class people are not moving to California. Some wealthy people are who are attracted to the high end new economy jobs in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, but middle class folks just can't afford to move to California and many middle class people who are here are moving out. And the biggest problem is the housing costs and there's government policies that contribute to high housing costs, environmental and land use regulation and other things, but just the whole package of costs that include taxes and regulatory expenses and such, just make it prohibitively expensive. So the state's priorities have not been, how do we make this place affordable for the middle class? It's been, how can we combat climate change? Or how can we pursue some other progressive agenda goal? That's a choice that the state has chosen to make, but it has a a natural sort of foreseeable consequence in that it makes the state less affordable for middle class folks. And Texas has gone the other direction. It has worked very hard to keep costs low. And so middle class people are now moving to Texas from places like California and other high cost states. And so, I mean, this is how the nation is sort of providing these alternative options because we have this federalism system where states can pursue different policy uh, goals and, and objectives. You get these different experiments out there. So Texas looks very different than California in terms of the affordability for the middle class.
0: And how inextricably is that experimentation at the state level tied to what the federal government is deciding to do or willing to do? You've talked about you know, state-level public pluralism and experimentation, but how much does California need uh, certain assurances and funding and the like from the federal government in order to do what it's doing and vice versa, Texas?
1: Yeah, so it's a fascinating question—the dynamic relationship between the federal government and the states. The United States, more so than almost any other country, allows these sub-national governments, these state governments, to pursue pluralistic, different policies. And so that's why we get a situation where you have these this rivalry between states, where they're pursuing very different policy agendas. And it's also true that these states are not independent nations, and so they depend many ways on what's going on in Washington, D.C. and in the federal government. And one example of that is California's environmental agenda. California is expending a huge amount of effort and money to try to convert from a carbon-based to a carbon-free economy through regulatory means. And that whole effort will be futile if the rest of the United States and indeed the world doesn't sort of join into that project, right? California's carbon emissions are a small fraction of the global carbon emissions. And so it can do all it wants to to change its own carbon emissions, but it's not going to make a difference if the rest of the nation doesn't get on board. And Texas's pursuit of low labor costs and low regulatory costs will be futile if the national government, for example, imposes a national minimum wage of $15 an hour, something like that. Currently is $7.25 California is going up to $15 an hour. Texas is at seven twenty-five. dollars But if there's a national minimum wage of, of $15 an hour, then that just cuts part of the Texas model's legs out from under it because businesses won't be able to afford labor costs in the same way that they, they do now. And you could sort of go through policy by policy and see how the federal agenda can have a big impact on the states. I
2: but, wanted to add in on the federalism issue. And I think 7.25 minimum wage has clearly been superseded by inflation and time and the relevant minimum wage is higher than that. And I think Walmart indicates that because I think Walmart starts at about $11, $12. And to me, that's the classic minimum wage job out there. But I would also say that that these cities that dictate a $15 minimum wage, it, it's insane. The market dictates what things will bear. And it, it's good federal policy to have a de minimis minimum wage just so people aren't taking advantage of new immigrants or people who will work for anything. But at the same time, you chase out all the low paying jobs in cities like Seattle and L.A. if you dictate a $15 minimum wage because some businesses just can't operate on that. And I don't think that's a threat to Texas because I don't think that we'll ever impose something so draconian here. In it. And also I think that people can live a lot more modestly and simply here because the cost of real estate is so much lower because our property taxes are actually the weakness in our state budget because they're way too high. And I would also say that I think the 10th Amendment um, federalism debate is a canard because the federal government has gotten so huge and so leviathan and so all-encompassing that states' rights is pretty close to a moot issue, frankly. And and yeah, we're defending a small amount of turf that's left there, but it's pretty small. And I think the court systems have actually been the the biggest defender of some modicum of state states' rights continuing at, at this point. But you look at what the federal government was like pre-World War II and what it's like now, and it, it's just been turned upside down. It used to be all about the states before then, and now it's all about the federal government.
1: I would agree. There's been a massive shift from the states to the federal government over time. And at the same time, um, part of what my book research uh, really impressed on me was that there is still room for variation at the states at the state level on many important issues of domestic policy and that's why we do get these different models emerging from the states a red state model and a blue state model on things like state taxes and labor law and environmental policy and social issues and more And absolutely true the federal government is the biggest player in um, domestic policy in the United States but states do have significant role to play. So why should somebody take a look at this book right now? Why is it consequential to the larger
0: national policy conversation, cultural conversation? We're at a time of inc- incredible sort of polarization. Why is your book relevant?
1: The book is describing two competing models that are available in the United States. One is a highly uh, progressive model that California has developed, especially over the, the past decade or so, on a wide range of policies. It's a comprehensive. A picture of what progressive policymaking can look like across healthcare, welfare, social issues, taxes, environmental protection, energy policy, and the like. And so you can see played out in real time in this laboratory of democracy in California what a progressive agenda looks like. And Texas has developed a comprehensive conservative agenda on taxes, spending, social policy and the like. And so you can look at Texas and see what does a conservative agenda look like in real time in a a very large state. So these are the two largest states in the country. One out of every five Americans lives in these two states. So these are not small laboratories. These are very big jurisdictions that are experimenting with these two very starkly contrasting models. And so the presidential and congressional elections are presenting the voters of the United States with a, a chance to uh, vote, essentially to to uh, choose among or between these two competing options that are presented by Texas and California. And so in a real way, the, the 2020 election and all of our federal elections these days are referenda between these two models. And the way it's worked out over time over the last generation or so is that there's been essentially a 50-50 split uh, at the federal level. And so neither side has been able to fully implement either a progressive or a conservative agenda. But what can imagine a situation in which one side um, is able to establish sufficient majorities in the Congress and win the White House and perhaps also gain control of the Supreme Court. And so you could see a bigger opportunity for one party or the other to pursue either the California agenda or the Texas agenda. So um, I think what's interesting about these two states is, again, that they provide um, real-time models of what a progressive vision for the future looks like and what a more conservative vision of the future looks like.
2: I would put in a plug for Ken's book here as an outside objective source. I don't think this subject's ever been more relevant in my lifetime, maybe in the history of the country. If if you really look at the way the country breaks down now, it's kind of almost like a business school case study clustering effect where, you know, it's uncanny how if you have a gas station on one corner of an intersection, very rapidly, you'll have three others on all the other corners because, because competitors tend to cluster together and, Prosperity tends to draw people, and the two most dynamic states in the country by far are Texas and California. You're going to have to put Florida in that mix at some point. New York's fading, it would be fourth. But really, as we go, so goes the country, and they're there just two such contradictory visions of where America should go that it's really the whole ball of wax. And I, I would add into this, and I'm very grateful that the founders were wise enough to set up the electoral college because you're basically disenfranchising every voter in Vermont and South Dakota if if you just have a pure democracy popular vote because what how those people vote will never matter. And even if you didn't have two senators per state, their viewpoints would not be heard in our government. So I think the wisdom of that is pretty obvious at this point. And every American should really pay attention to the trends in Texas and California. And I, I would I would argue that Texas is trending more mainstream. It got to where it was almost so hard right that it was out of the mainstream 5, 10, 15 years ago. And I think with people moving in from California and New York and other states, and also the Hispanic population growth, that Texas is, is moving more towards a pale red instead of a blood red. And I would argue that California is getting more and more extreme by the day. So whichever one of these visions the country adopts, and I think it will adopt one of them at some point, will be outcome determinative in terms of what our country looks like for the rest of our lifetimes.
0: One thinks of voting with their feet. And I know that Ken is a fifth generation Californian who just married a Texan. So maybe there's something there. And George is a seventh generation Texan. And uh, and I married a fifth generation Texan as well. Ken, are you going to stay put? Or are you going to actually make a move and put your money where your mouth is?
1: <laughs> well, um, there are a lot of things that I, I love about Texas. I, I love uh, my wife and her family. And and their deep connections to that state. And I was able to spend a year living in Dallas as I was researching this book and had a a great time really immersing myself in in Texas culture. But as a fifth generation Californian, I have pretty deep roots in this place. And I I love California for all its flaws. It's a fantastic place to be. And so at least for now, this is where we're going to be.
2: I would just add that I'm really glad you had me on because I'm not one of these Texans who hates California or is biased against California. I love California. I think it's the most beautiful place in the world. And I worry about its sustainability because it's just a wonderful place. If God redid the Garden of Eden in modern era, he'd put it in California, no doubt about it. But I'm I'm glad to be a Texan because I, I really I think our way of life is superior at this point. But I love visiting California as long as I don't have to pay income taxes there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and there, there it was. There was the Faith Angle. Thanks to you both so much for investing time.
2: Thanks, Josh. Thank you, Josh. It's a pleasure. Great to be with you both.
0: Faith Angle exists to connect cutting-edge scholars, policy shapers, and nationwide journalists. Thanks for listening. Oh,